Hello everyone, my name is Norway Zwana and I'm an economist for the World Bank. I'll be hosting today's program on new wave in which uh, I will be covering the economic crisis that Pakistan faced in the year 2023. Uh, we'll go over some of Pakistan's major problems. And joining me today here is a very special guest. Uh, I would like to introduce Dr. Nadeemul Haq, who is a senior economist and uh, has uh, had decades of experience behind him. He served as the deputy chairman <laughs> of the Pakistan Planning Commission. He's uh, been with the uh, he's he's worked with the IMF for over twenty years, and most recently he's serving as the vice chancellor of Pakistan's Institute of Development Economics, PIDE. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today, here, sir. Pleasure to be with you, Norris. Pleasure to be yeah. with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So before we begin and I turn to you, I'd just like to set the stage a little bit. Uh, the year 2023 wasn't so different in terms of how Pakistan's economy did and how it has been faring over the last few years at least. But uh, still in some aspects, it was the worst that we've experienced. We started in January 2023 with our foreign reserves dwindling at about $3.1 billion. And that is uh, less than two weeks of import cover. That's what it covers. Uh, in By May 2023, our inflation was hitting over 38%. Uh, our food inflation was, was somewhere near 50%. And these are staggering figures in terms, if you look at its impact on the common man, the local population of the country. Uh, the interest rates were hiked by 300 basis points by the government. It went over 20%, the highest it has been since October 1996. The real GDP contracted by over 0.6%. Uh, and all of these measures had a lasting impact on the energy crisis, on basic livable conditions that people tend to face. Uh, one of the key issues that we faced that, again, carried through from 2022 was the fact that we were unable to find an agreement with the IMF on a structural adjustment program. Eventually, it happened in June of this year and uh, Pakistan reached a staff level agreement of $3 billion. The next tranche of $700 million, which would be released in January 2024, given that uh, the agreements that were made are uh, Pakistan's been able to satisfy those. So now turning towards you, we have been in this conundrum for quite a while, for years actually. This is going to be Pakistan's 23rd program with the IMF. Actually, we've already had 23rd, so any other program will be the 24th program with the IMF. Why do you think that Pakistan still continues to suffer from these structural issues, these chronic problems, and we tend to go back and forth with uh, multilateral organizations and we turn towards our bilateral partners and other countries such as the UAE, China, Saudi. Notice the fundamental problem is that we continue to think of Pakistan as a normal country which has structures of a uh, advanced economy which has capability and competence, to use some sense term, which has capabilities and, and competence of a modern state. In many ways, Pakistan never did become a modern state. We started running with the paraphernalia that the colonial state left us. We never modernized our laws. We had 
we had a civil service that we inherited. We kept it exactly as it is. It's a non-technical civil service. It's a civil service made of colonial gentlemen who try and wing it in a very, very technical modern world. Their incentives are all wrong. Their incentives are to serve the colonial master because the colonial master's terms of giving them massive privileges, massive um, benefits that rely on colonial largesse are intact. We tacked onto them a global infrastructure where their incentives now are to find a way into the World Bank, into the, into the UN system, into this system, that system, where the, 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 the international agencies take them on scholarships and on tours everywhere. So the state is that in, in the entire government, there are no technical skills. There are no economists, there are no power engineers, there are no railway uh, people, there are no uh, cost-benefit analysts. There are, so all the systems are broken inside the government. If you, if you go back and think about it, Pakistan inherited no economists, no engineers to begin with. Then we slowly created some, but as we create them, they run away from the country faster than we create them. Because quite frankly, the generalist civil service wants to hold no one back. So everybody who's educated runs away. The second thing is that our, our judicial system is that of the colonial system, which relies on arbitrary laws. It's really not a modern judicial system. So they thresh about and interfere in the marketplace all the time. And this brings me to another point. We do not believe in markets. We have a system, the colonial system, never believed in markets, never believed in entrepreneurships. If you read the books by Shitharur and other people, they'll tell you the colonial, colonial system was meant to extract from here and take to the West. That system still continues. Now the extractive powers are the local uh, bureaucracy and the judiciary and the, and the army and they want to extract and keep the money for themselves and mostly take it away too. So that system remains intact in every which way we are not a modern state and we don't believe in the market. The colonial state, if you recall, did not believe in the market. It meant in crushing the local initiative. Even today, we crush local initiative. For example, I'm in Karachi right now, talking about this with many people. We take agriculture, which is one of our largest sectors. Agriculture, there is no market. The bureaucracy controls the seed, the bureaucracy controls the input, the bureaucracy controls the output, they set the prices. Then we take any other industry. We have licenses, we have NOCs, we have this regime that continues, where markets are thoroughly discouraged and bureaucratic permissions take over. So any investor, much of his time is spent seeking bureaucratic permissions. On top of that, along come the IMF and the World Bank, and they want to just simply do a quick fix solution because obviously they don't have the time, nor do they have the local expertise. So they want to do a quick fix solution. The IMF is mainly thinking of making the books balance, and that do short-term books. They don't want to think about the long-term. So it's a short-term book balancing setup that the IMF does. So they merely play around with the income statement. They worry about taxation only. The World Bank is lending uh, targets. So they want to lend money to us. They'll do all kinds of things. They'll say, okay, here's a cup broken, fix it. We'll give you some money. Here's a system, um, you know, something. They'll, they've, they've got excess manpower. So they keep coming up with fresh ideas to, uh, you know, lend money. 
and we are hungry for money, so we keep borrowing. Then at the another instance, we have um, all these other consultants who have a vested interest in taking aid money. UN brings in the SDGs. Now, we have, what, 114 SDGs. We don't have the capability of managing one. But now we are running around chasing 114 SDGs, 20,000 programs in the World Bank, then several programs by other donors. So we really don't know. We are chasing our tail. We are running around doing these things. So quite frankly, if you put this cocktail together, there's no way that we can work our way out of this unless we deeply, deeply restructure the colonial state. We modernize our systems. We still don't use digital, digital technology anyway. We are a paper-based, in fact, not even a paper-based economy. We are a paper-based economy of the 19th century. Everything that we do, we put in sextuplicate or triplicate or whatever. We carry huge tons of paper and we file them and we file them and we file them and we file them. Every entrepreneur's time is spent filing paper. And yeah, absolutely. This is yeah. the situation. If you look at it in a nutshell, nobody will tell you this. We pretend that Pakistan is a normal state. All we have to do is collect taxes and do whatever the World Bank says. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. I think you've hit the nail in the head to say so, because A, you mentioned about the fact that there's lack of entrepreneurship, and it drills down that there hasn't been much private sector development. We continue to see our private entities, our state-owned enterprises, year on year, decades on decades, operating on losses, which, again, obviously drilled down to greater public debt. There's larger amounts of, uh, uh, you know, public expenditure that we tend to incur because of these very factors. And in this modern day, nine out of 10 jobs are created by the private sector. The only job that the government has is to create the right du jour environment and to make sure that in de facto it's implemented correctly so that there's the legal, the regulatory, the policy environment is such that it is conducive for private sector growth. However, in Pakistan, we see absolutely, and whenever there's talk about privatization, there's a, there's a lot of pushback and it also comes, the pushback also tends to come back from political, you know, political parties and those political stakeholders. And uh, then you rightly mentioned about lack of digitization. And that is why I feel that Pakistan's informal sector, I believe, is over 60 to 70 percent, according to certain estimates, that we continue to operate in shadows. And there's an incentive tied to it as well, because many of those large industries, we're not talking about, uh, you know, street vendors when we talk about informal economy. There are large industries that do operate under the shadow because they do not want to disclose uh, you know, the amount of profits that they're making, the amount of contribution tools they have, which is, again, deterrent to formal private sector growth. But then coming back to the point, how, like, what are the mechanisms? We cannot isolate political economy from economic development. Those political factors undoubtedly are very grossly tied. But then what is the way out of it? We can't rely, like you mentioned, on international organizations. And personally, I feel that it's not even their mandate. Because if you look at the IMF, the IMF is there just to help countries with short-term liquidity. That is what they're there to do. They're not there to fix how you manage or how you govern your country. Then who do you think can steer the ship out of this crisis how do we, you know, move out of it? Because you're already a population of 250 million. By 2050, we're estimated to cross 400 million. And, you know, those are scary numbers. We already lack resources to invest in human capital. 30, over 30 million kids are out of school. 
and then you know the population outburst how what do you how do you envision pakistan managing the crisis which is amplifying day by day look quite frankly first of all i disagree with you on a number of propositions the informal economy is wonderful informal economy is what has keep what is keeping us afloat the formal economy is the problem in this country the government is bankrupt the economy is not when you come come to pakistan you see people are flourishing it's the government that is bankrupt and people are flourishing because they are trying to make a life for themselves they are enterprising as adam smith said they want to truck and barter they want to do things the political economy is that the world bank the donors don't understand the country and yet they have a disproportionately large role here like can you imagine the world bank is going around selling a reform agenda for the next government where did it get the mandate to do that should it be doing that is that agenda well consulted well thought out has that agenda been discussed locally no and they don't want to discuss they want to tell us so the political economy is not our political economy it's international political economy when the un comes with the sdgs do we even know about it some ex bank world bankers made the sdgs and now we have to live with it and so the issue is that what is the reform that we need how should it be done if the world bank un those guys are going to come and design it then i'm afraid there's no way out because that reform is going to be designed by lending priorities and external forces as well as people who do not understand our economy so i think that's a key issue now the issue is what reform do we need at home yes some of us we are talking about it we are writing about it but there's a fundamental disconnect we do not have the ability to reach our ministers etc our leaders because we have no money when the world bank comes with 2 billion dollars adb comes with 2 billion dollars and you have mckinsey with 500 million dollars and you know um kemonics uh, with another 300 million dollars from usaid from this from that who will listen to us so this is the fundamental this is the mbc moyo thesis if you read her the constituency of your government is the foreigners not us and we can't stop international bureaucracies because they are too obviously you need to look after your careers so international bureaucracy just does not see eye to eye with us and there's no way we can we have that conversation so the country wants to go in one direction international bureaucracy wants to go in another direction it has the money so the leaders will listen to the international bureaucracy not the local people so there's no local political economy doesn't doesn't figure up as much as the international political economy now who's going to win out of all this my prediction is who's going to win out of this are the fundamentalists they are the took they have a totally domestic agenda totally divorced from the international community like taliban or whatever they will probably come and make a change at some point things will get so bad that they will take over and then we'll have to go through a lot of pain i'm not saying it's going to be happy uh, times for us it's probably going to be 30 40 years of pain but quite frankly maybe that's what we need 
Maybe that's what we need because there is no way the international bureaucracy is going to say, okay, guys, let's take a pause and let's try and figure out how we can make this country move forward. And I don't think it's going to happen, not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime. But somewhere along the line, the only break is that only indigenous thought that matters, which is hurtful, which is harmful, which is not the best. But we probably have to go through that phase. So actually, on that note, the, the two things which came out of uh, of what you've just mentioned, and I was hoping that you know you would kind of elaborate a bit more on that. So uh, I really want to address the latter part, you know, the fundamentalists taking over and what you think would be the way out, and it would take some time. But before that, you also mentioned that uh, the government is undoubtedly bankrupt, and we've seen that, and it's very conspicuous, it's very profound. But then you also mentioned that the people are flourishing. And here, I just wanted, uh, you know, for you to unpack that a little more as to what does that, what do you, what does that mean, or what does that imply? Which segment of the population are you referring to? Because we're looking at again, 2023, in 2022, 34 percent of Pakistan's population was living under poverty. Uh, at the year end, 2023, 39.4 percent. So, an additional 24. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Where did you get those figures from? Those those are officially stated figures based on the three point six five. I haven't seen them anywhere. Uh, th these are these are World Bank figures. World Bank figures. You see, that's the problem. <laughs> we disagree. PID, which is the largest think tank in Pakistan, disagrees. We think poverty is down to twenty two percent. In fact, on the old line, poverty is down to eight percent. I, if if World Bank has a vested interest in increasing poverty figures, fine. These poverty figures are, are not correct at all. Poverty is nowhere near forty percent, not thirty-four percent. I'm afraid. But, if you define, but, if you define poverty as me not having a Mercedes and I'm poor too, maybe it is the three point. It's a three point six five dollars per day. The 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 the, the official metric okay, of, let's, of let's, let's work. Let's work at three point six five dollars per day. $3.65 per day is right now at the current exchange rate almost 1500 rupees per day. Okay? 1500 rupees per day divided by 30 and multiplied by 30, sorry, is about 45,000 uh, a month. Then you've got a family of six. You multiply by, because obviously it's an individual number, you multiply by six. So you've got, in fact, I think it's more because five children is basically, but anyway, let's take a family of six. Multiply the by six, that's three lakh rupees per month, right? If three or 2.4, 2. 2. Um, uh, 240,000 a month. If you take 240,000 a month, you take the household income, income expenditure survey, that would mean, for God's sakes, 99% of our population is poor. But, but sir, we're assuming that all, all members of the household are earning, which is not, which is unlikely the case to be. No, but, in many but, the, poverty, but the poverty figure is measured as that, right? I mean, we have to be clear. Yeah. This is the problem. World Bank makes these humongous statements and gets away with it. We keep asking them to share the methodology. Tell us. You talk about peer review. Where does the donor do peer review? They don't do peer review, just make announcements. Now, I'm asking you a very simple question. Okay, what is this poverty? $3.65. Is it per family? Is it per individual? Um, it's per, it individual. per individual, per, yes. So, if it's per individual, then my math is correct. We are talking about 240,000 rupees a month, which is a very um, high income in Pakistan. So, then obviously, there's a large number of people who are poor. 
example, right? Even today, for example, in Paid, in where I work, for example, or even the planning commission, the, I think almost 90% of the people make less money than that a month. So I think these figures really need to be thought through. And before we put them in the public and just sort of start crying over them, tears rolling down our cheeks, we should at least have a peer review and think about it. Whenever we do anything, you tell us, get a peer review. So the international donors don't need a peer review. They just make announcements. So I'm sorry, those figures are not correct. Now make your case. No, but, the, but the news that we saw, they were coming out of Pakistan, especially in the summer when the energy crisis what it was at its peak. Uh, you know, people were committing suicide and they were unable yeah. to pay, would pay their bills. I, I mean, I this, mean is, this is... All, 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 all. If one person committed suicide, big, look, the suicide rate in Pakistan is still one of the lowest. Happiness, we come out with one of the, uh, one of the, I think, 18, 19 or 20. So come on, it's not that bad. The issue is just this. You come here, you take a look. Consumer goods are doing very well. If you look at the growth rate of consumer good company, like, uh, what is this, um, Unilever or something, growing at 30, 40% per annum. If you look at the offtake of Coke and Pepsi and McDonald's, they're doing very well. If you look at the, the motorcycle sales, they're doing very, very well. If you look at the car sales, you have to wait two, three months to get a car. So, you know, the sales figures are showing very well. If you look at the real estate price, it's going through the roof. For example, in Islamabad, there are million-dollar properties that are doing well. Um, not flying off the shelf, but still doing well. Um, prices are not coming down. If you if you look at, um, for example, the number of mobile ownership, the television ownership, they're doing very well. So the informal economy is our saving grace. I shudder for the day when the government closes the informal economy, as the World Bank wants. If they close the informal economy, the Taliban will be nearer to us. They will get there closer. So I think we have to really understand that the only market in Pakistan is the informal economy. And the only market killer in Pakistan is the government. Anything the government touches gets done. For example, take another thing. Take medicines, right? Now, medicines, because they're highly regulated, the government doesn't give them the, the right price. The, the cabinet fixes the price for every medicine. This is the regulation. When you have this kind of regulation, and by the way, this is the World Bank kind of participated in this. When you have this kind of regulation, what happens is all the multinationals are leaving Pakistan. And now, for example, there's a huge insulin shortage in the country. We are the highest diabetic country in the world, and we have an insulin shortage. At the same time, other life-threatening drugs are not coming into the country because the government is trying to manipulate the exchange rate. And the IMF tells us they want a clean market exchange rate, but we don't have a market exchange rate. And the IMF closes its eyes and says, it's okay, we'll give you a review. Now, we can't get essential medicines because they won't allow them to be imported. We can't manufacture essential medicines because the government won't allow price increases. So we are stuck in the middle. In the meanwhile, the government comes along because the World Bank and the IMF, etc. say, hey, you must have a social protection. So the government puts in a universal health care. Now, the universal health care, I don't know how it's going to function. Maybe five years, ten years down the road, we'll start crying. What happened? What happened? We've got a huge deficit. But nobody thought through the system. Nobody uh, paid attention as to what are we trying to do? What are the long-term implications of this? But does that not also have to do with how we allocate our budgets? I mean, it goes without saying the big elephant in the room that our majority of spending goes towards, you know, addressing the military gaps, the military budgeting, 
and a lot of it is taken away from sectors such as education and healthcare. However, no, that's, that's, again, again, that's that's just popular mythology. Look, the military takes, um, if I remember right, um, the military is about four, three to four percent of GDP, right? And quite frankly, I I will not say take money away from the military. I think, quite frankly, defense is something that we need. This has become popular liberal bullshit today. Take guns and butters and things like that. Education, we have a lot of education spending. It's not that we don't have spending. Federal government has little, but the provinces now are spending as much as 30-40% on education. For us, education is not a spending problem. Education is a management issue. We don't know how to provide education. For example, I'll tell you, we've done some research on this. We have 360 universities. And because of this key pressure that, hey, schools, children out of schools, children out of schools, we want to build infrastructure. We build a lot of infrastructure in education. So we build brick and mortar. We build 300 universities. And every politician wants to show off that he's cutting the ribbon for a university. Unfortunately, one thing we forgot. Universities are made up of professors. So on average, we have two professors per university, full professors, and by Pakistani standards, not international standards, right? Our edu university education is pathetic. Now go to schools, right? We couldn't make schools. We had we had schools, and we had very good schools. We had excellent public schools, but the bureaucracy killed them because there's a population pressure, and the bureaucracies wanted to divert money towards themselves. So we have these schools, but we killed the schools. We brought in private education. Fair enough. Private education is very expensive. It's serving the rich. But there is also poor private education that's also working very well. But the issue then is that the government wants to set the curriculum. And the curriculum has heavy loads of Islam and other things in it. So there is very little time for modern subjects left. And then we are perpetually confused about Urdu versus uh, English. Every few days we want to put in new Urdu, then we want to put in Arabic. And then English we want to throw out the window. But our biggest advantage is that we do know English. Unfortunately, we're trying to lose that. So if you go back and think about these things a little more carefully, it is not a, it's not a money issue at all. It is a management issue. Take energy. Biggest problem is energy. Take energy. Our biggest problem is energy. What have we done in energy? It's not that we lack energy. It's not we. It's a totally misplaced policy where everything is centralized. But we do not want to make the energy market. The World Bank put us on a path of IPPs and and, and uh, de de dismantling the energy sector. And now we are in a mess. We don't have enough um, things there. Uh, enough management of energy. We are leaking like a sim in energy. We've got a subsidy policy that's bad. We've got a pricing policy that's bad. I can go into chapter and verse on that. Yep, absolutely. Who's going to yes. solve that Who's going to solve that problem? The World Bank says we're going to solve that. They send in these energy people or tax people, for example. We've had th three programs of $400 million each, loans that we took, and the tax system gets bad every time. We've had so many programs on energy. We've taken billions of dollars, and the energy sector goes from bad to worse. So how do, what, how do I think about it? Tell me. I think the best is to kind of... Uh... Again, the issues with energy, as per my knowledge, hasn't been with energy generation as much as it has been about management, governance, and transmission. And uh, it all comes Basically, down to... Basically, management and governance, not transmission. Management and governance. First of all, tell me, 20, 30 years ago, the World Bank insisted that there should be rural electrification. Do we need rural electrification? 
must every village have electricity so i think that is a misplaced concept that we spent a lot of time we spread the grid left right and center now we've got a huge grid and we talk about this so look the point is let us at least begin to develop an energy system that we need and not that the consultant needs we needed local grids we didn't need a big large grid system which you developed now obviously there are energy losses but that doesn't matter we can still fix it but most important of all do we have an energy system do we even have agency in fixing our system or is the agency lying in washington and london and wherever so i think these are fundamental issues that we have to think through and talk about which unfortunately we don't talk about we take all the blame they we did messed up we messed up yes we messed up we didn't fix the colonial system but now we've got a huge number of players in the system that we can't sort out so what do we do so how do we take that agency back you know going by what you've mentioned if that actually is the crux of the problem i mean uh, uh, we are we are trying in the in the pid we've done a lot of research we're writing a lot we do conferences every bloody day more or less we do webinars every day we do twitter spaces every day we are trying to build an agenda for change we are trying to build an agency for reform our biggest problem is fighting the donors because they don't want, they don't want to cooperate with us they actually want to fight us they actually want to go around saying no no please don't listen to us listen to uh, don't listen to these guys listen to us i wish we tr- we try and form a coalition with them they don't want to form a coalition because they've got their lending targets they've got other things right and they are very imperial in their attitude i wish we could get the donors to sit together with the people who want to make change in pakistan as equals not a servant master right now the the the, the donors feel they are masters and we are servants we are trying to build a agenda for change and we ask them to come in as equals and they say no we don't and then they spread these things like for example poverty rate is 40% and you know sometimes they say there's a housing shortage of 10 million people come on there's no housing shortage of 10 we've looked at it sometimes they say oh my god you know we you've got remittances coming from india oh we are sending remittances to india for like 5 billion dollars sometimes they'll say it's corruption well okay fair enough we've got corruption but tell me is us lobbying not corruption So US yeah, of course is clean. Yeah, US of course it is. US lobbying then, is clean. US consulting how, is clean. How, how do you view the inflation numbers? I'm actually very curious. Mm-hmm. How do you yeah. view the inflation numbers like closer to 40% and in certain sectors it's beyond 40%, closer to 50% in energy or food? Look, I think inflation is something that um, honestly I haven't even understood and I'm trying to understand it. We try to tighten money, we take an interest rate of 22%, maybe they should go to 40%, maybe it's at 50%. But I'm not sure about inflation because quite frankly there's so many administered price prices and they keep changing like the gas prices have gone up by god knows how many 100%. Um uh, the oil prices keep going up and down. So the inflation and then wheat prices the government fixes so there's a lot of administrative price issue that we need to sort out somebody needs to really seriously i mean i tried to do that once but we got be a short stop somebody really needs to and the world bank etc never do any serious research they have this gimmicky research we really need to look at this inflation number honestly and try and understand or alternatively okay fine inflation time not saying it's not high but then our growth rate is negative so we calculated the sacrifice ratio that if you bring inflation down growth rate drops for every percentage point growth rate drops by 0.66% right okay 
So, okay, let's at least begin to look at the trade-off, the Phillips curve. Let's try and figure out, okay, what is the optimal inflation number? How much should growth come down and where should growth come down? But the bigger problem even, the bigger problem is we have no investment in the country. Investment is down to 13%. So, we have to talk about investment. We have no big companies in the country. Why don't we have big companies in the country? Because the regulatory system, which is so flawed, which is so flawed, and nobody has the time to sit down and look at the regulatory system. Every time we mention regulation, no, we'll get FDI, we'll get FDI. Okay, we'll run after FDI. So we get FDI, then we say, oh my God, but we have to repay. We don't know how to repay. So we, we've tied ourselves to knots because we never really have a good dialogue on these things. And those sectoral exports, experts that come in from McKinsey's or Goldman Sachs or whatever, and, or um, hired by the World Bank or the different etc., they leave a short report here. Nobody understands, nobody has a time to read it. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, like poverty rate has gone up. So, okay, come on, guys. I keep telling them, at least come and do a beer review. Eat, if, I, if I could help it, I would mandate that all your missions, all these consultants should at least come and give one seminar at our universities so that at least we should have peer review. But they say, no, we can't do that. So tell me, how do we function then? Of course, these are very valid points and uh, thank you for bringing them to the core and highlighting them. And I feel that there has to be greater communication both between uh, the international organizations and uh, people who are local experts such as yourself who are actually running certain research programs on the ground. And I guess more importantly, the onus to some degree does fall on the government as well in order to for them to bolster their internal capacity, uh, you know, because they are the ones... No, uh, nor is the government, remember, the government is not answerable to us. The government is answerable to the lenders. So the government is answering to the lenders, they're not answering to us. Why should they improve capacity? When the World Bank and the lenders don't want to improve capacity, when they go to the government and say, hey, we'll do everything for you. Please don't listen to these guys. We'll do everything for you. Why should the government listen to us? But in an ideal scenario, what I'm trying to come at is because because you began the discussion by you know highlighting that the government does not have technical expertise. They rely on you know old formats of bureaucracy where people do not really understand what they're doing for. And I guess if the government did have that capacity, then they would have been better able to circumvent or kind of mitigate the the, the Look, political economy are, dynamics of the, the country. Tell them, if the lenders tell them that you don't need the local capacity because we've got McKinsey's, we've got Kimonics, we've got all these guys, we've got the whole industrial overload. We've got 10,000 people or maybe 20,000 people now in the World Bank who need jobs, we've got 100,000 people in the UN who need jobs and the only way they can't advise the American government, they can't advise the UK government, they can't advise the EU, advise the EU government, they all come here. They don't, in, India doesn't even want them so they come and advise here and we are receptive to them. So, obviously, by definition, the government says, hey, the government tells me all the time, hey, I've got this report from them. Why do I need you? The old bank has solved the energy problem. I tell them, okay, 10 years later, we'll learn. But so that's 10 years later. Right now, I've got a report I can work with. So, I think we really need to look at what I call the epistemology of policy. How is policy made? Who does the research for policy? And we don't talk about that. We think that any report is okay. But you've seen reports, I've seen reports, many of them are not okay. And unless we can digest and absorb them, and unless we have the capacity to indulge in peer review and really discuss them, we can be led up the garden path and we can talk about that. For example, take the, take the evaluations of the World Bank or evaluations of anything, even the IMF. 
10 years later, we hear revaluation. Montek did one for the IMF. Many people have this. That look, the evaluation say the program didn't work well. It was not designed well. But by then, we got the loan and we had to pay for it. So how do we fix this? So I, these are deep problems. I don't think we can solve them in one show. But these are things that we should talk about and think about. Yep. No, no, thank you so much. I think uh, it, it's okay to kind of uh, uh, pivot the discussion with more questions to answer than to have the answer to every question that was put forth. There's, there's always, you know, food for thought. And these are very big questions that need to be addressed over the next uh, period of time uh, if the country has to kind of find its way towards an upward trajectory. But uh, on that note, please thank you for highlighting things. Please yeah. take them up. Uh, unless the media starts thinking about these issues and talking about them, we have this very superficial discussion. Who's going to win the next election? It is, would it be Bilawal or Mariam or whatever? I think those are very trivial questions. We have to ask these deeper questions. How is policy made? Who makes policy? Who does the research? Yeah. How do we take decisions? Where is this is it discussed? How is it absorbed by the people? I think these are deeper discussions that we must have. Thank you very much. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. I cannot agree more. And I think it's very interesting that you've highlighted this particular perspective because it is not spoken of at all. Whenever we talk about the economy, usually the same issues are reinforced, they're spoken of again. And I think before we step to the solution part, it's kind of important to put the spotlight on things which are not talked about. And uh, so thank you for your time. Economy, economy has become like, like a religion. Somebody says, we must increase the tax GDP. The other economist says, amen. Somebody says, we must have exported. The other guy says, amen. So we become a bunch of priests. And that's why we would lose out. Thank you. All the best Thank to you. you. Thank you. You too.